He's revealed as the one who's unknown. He's the one more worthy than John. He's the one who is coming after John. He's the Lamb of God. He ranks superior to John. He existed before John. He's the one anointed with the Spirit. He's the one revealed to John. He's the one that baptizes with the Spirit. He's the chosen one of God. He's the rabbi. He's the one that gives spiritual sight. He's the Messiah. He that, he's the one that transforms the identity of his disciples. He's the one that seeks out his disciples. He's the one Moses and the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, one who possesses comprehensive knowledge of all man, son of God, king of Israel, the one on whom the angels ascend and descend, and the son of man. Is there any question what John is doing? That is all packed into this first chapter, and that doesn't include the prologue. John is very intentional about unpacking who, what this man named Jesus is. What kind of Messiah is he? That's what John is after in this chapter. And what does that mean for his followers? Well, last week we were in, in, in day four of this first week. So you can see there in verses 43 to 51 is day four. Jesus began um, the section by seeking out his disciples and he ends it by giving a promise to his new disciples. So they believed in him. They concluded correctly that he is the Messiah. But their faith is incomplete at this point. It's small. And so look at verse 51. This is where we were last week. Jesus gives them a promise that they will see greater things about his person. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And we talked last week a little bit about what that means. He tells them he's not just a political Messiah. You're right, I'm the Messiah, but you have a lot to learn about what kind of Messiah I am. I have come to inaugurate a new age, a new covenant. The disciples will come to know that Jesus is the one that mediates God to man. Jesus will be the ladder that Jacob saw in his vision. Jesus will be the access point between God and man. Jesus will be the way that all the covenant blessings will come to man. Israel failed to do that. Jesus will be the way that we come to worship and know and be reconciled to this God. Jesus will be that ladder. That's what he tells his disciples that they will see. So the question is, when will they see it? So he says, you will see these things. Well, the question is, okay, well, when? Well, the answer is ultimately in the cross and resurrection. But they'll all ultimately, progressively come to see these things through the ministry of Christ. And what we're going to see this morning is step one in chapter two. They're going to see more and more now of his messiahship and what he promises them in verse 51. And again, going... Step back and, and think about us. We too, by faith, through the new birth, have come to see the glory of the person and the work of Christ. Everyone in here who's a believer. The new birth gives us eyes. Before we didn't even have eyes, the new birth gives us eyes. The glory of Christ is shining. We're blind to it. New birth gives us eyes. We see it, we behold it, and we receive it. That's what happens in conversion. We embrace it, depend on it. It's the essence of faith. We can say with John in chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory. That's what every believer says. We've seen his glory. 
And the result is we've embraced it as our own. This morning, we're going to see, through Christ's signs, more of his glory. And it's as we behold his glory that our faith grows. Look at the end of this section, chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And what happened? And his disciples <coughs> believed in him. What we will see this morning is a manifestation of the glory of Christ. John tells us right here, this is what we're looking for in our passage. The glory of Christ on display. It's as we see his glory that we'll respond as the disciples do with, with faith. Throughout the Gospel of John, three things happen when the glory of Christ is put on display. Number one, it shines on those who are blind. They haven't been born again and they reject it. Christ performs his signs. They don't get his signs. They just want the bread. They don't want the one that the signs point to. They're blind. They reject him. Second thing that happens Light shines, the glory of Christ is displayed, and initial faith happens. The new birth, the Spirit gives eyes. I see Him as He truly is, and I embrace Him, I receive Him. And the third thing that happens when the glory of Christ is put on display is that believers come to a deeper, fuller, truer faith in this glory. And that's what's going to happen this morning. These disciples are already believers. Look back at chapter 1, verse 50. Jesus said to them, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? These disciples believe. And now he's going to reveal his glory and their faith is going to grow. And that's what happens to believers. That's what must happen to us. As we see his glory this morning, that we would respond in a deeper, clearer faith and embracing of his person. We love him and worship him for what he truly is. So that's what we're after this morning. His glory is going to be put on display. And I've, I've titled this, Three Manifestations of Christ's Glory and the Changing of Water into Wine. Very familiar story, but very profound, very rich. And it begins, you can see in verse 1, on the third day. It's literally three days after what we just saw in verse 43. So verse 43 is day four, and the days were counted inclusively. So on the third day means verse 43, that day, and then another day, and then the third day. So you can say two days afterwards. Um, he decides in verse 43 to go to Galilee. Then there's a day in between, chapter one and chapter two, probably a travel day heading towards Galilee. And then the third day, day six of this week, in other words, chapter two. He arrives in Galilee. Not just in Galilee, it says here in Cana of Galilee. We're going to find out there's a wedding going on in, in Cana. And Cana is, just like Nazareth, a very small and insignificant and obscure town. Cana is not this bustling metropolis. Um, it's located about nine miles north of Nazareth. And it is... Uh, just a small little little village. Nothing, nothing big. But it's significant because not only will Christ perform his first sign here, he'll also perform his second sign in Galilee here. We've already talked, there's two cycles. 
Jesus begins in Judea. He goes to Cana and performs a sign that confirms everything that was proclaimed about him in Judea. It happens twice. And this is the first cycle. It's proclaimed by John the Baptist, goes to Cana, performs a sign that testifies that everything that John just proclaimed. And we're going to see cycle one this morning. So there's a wedding going on in Cana, and not just a wedding, but the mother of Jesus is there. Verse 1 says the mother of Jesus was there. Like I said, Cana was not very far from Nazareth. And so it's very possible that this was the wedding of a close family friend or relative. We're going to see that Mary is not just attending this wedding, but it seems she bears some responsibility. She's telling the servants what to do. So she's involved some way in this, in this wedding. But look at verse 2. Not just Mary was there, but Jesus was invited to this wedding. And his disciples accompanied him. And it's going to be here at this wedding that Jesus performs a sign and his disciples are going to be eyewitnesses. So all of that's introduction. All of that's the setting to get us, to get us ready. And now we come to the first manifestation of Christ's glory in verses 3 to 5. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. You've probably heard before that weddings at this time were very different from weddings that we know. Um, they didn't last a couple hours. They lasted up to a week. Um, it was a very huge celebration. Um, but partway into this wedding, a very disastrous thing happens. The wine begins to run out. And that might not sound too significant to us, um, not too big of a deal, but it was a very big deal in that culture. Wine was a symbol of blessing. It's a symbol of abundance and a symbol of celebration. And it wasn't just a... Uh, an optional thing. It was a required element to wedding celebrations. And beyond that, it was the groom's responsibility to finance the whole wedding celebration. It's like that in China. It's not like that in America. Um, so, men, be thankful. Um, <laughs> but it's his responsibility to provide for it and to finance this celebration. But here it begins to run out. That's a big deal. Um, it would have brought extreme shame on the family, and it also could open them up to legal uh, uh, ramifications. Uh, this was a, a required thing. Big deal. And the mother of Jesus feels the need to do something about this. So look what she says, verse 3. They have no wine, is what she tells Jesus. And the implication is that she wants Jesus to what? To do something about it. Right? They don't have any wine, Jesus. But the question is, what does she expect him to do? And the first thing to note is that she most certainly did not expect him <laughs> to do what he did. She does not expect him to do a miracle here. That's not what she's asking him to do. Verse 11, drop it right back down there, will tell us that this was the first of his signs that he does. And there is no evidence that Jesus had performed any miracle before this. Jesus did not go around during childhood doing miracles. 
as a lot of apocryphal literature wrote, and you see it in, in, in wide uh, mainstream media. In fact, back in chapter 1, 26, verse 26 and 31, John the Baptist makes clear that Jesus is unknown. The Messiah is unknown. He was not a likely candidate for Messiah. But if he was going around during his childhood doing miracles, then it'd be pretty obvious. Yeah, it could very possibly be him. But John the Baptist didn't even know that Jesus was Messiah. In other words, Jesus was not a miracle worker up to this point. His miracles and signs began only after he's declared to be Messiah by John. It's very significant. So the question is, if Mary is not asking for a miracle, then what is she asking Jesus to do? I think it's, it's pretty simple. She's probably just asking Jesus to figure out a plan. Jesus, they don't have any wine. If there was a close family relative, then... Mary and, and their family would feel a, a pretty strong obligation to go to go help them in some way. It's also possible that up to this point, Joseph has died, and Mary is relying on Jesus, has relied on Jesus um, for financial support, for management of the home, and so she's looking to him here um, to help out with this this problem. Help fix the situation is what she's saying. So Mary's request is rather surface level. We need help to fix this wine problem. But Jesus responds on another level to prepare us for what is about to take place. Jesus already knows what he's going to do. And so he responds here to make two significant points about his person and his work. So look what, what happens here in your outline. The first thing we note is that everybody must come in subjection to this Messiah. It's the first thing he points out. He responds to her request by explaining that from this point on, he's going to have a very different relationship with his mother. He says to her, literally, what is to me and to you? What is there to me and to you? Yeah. Jesus was always so respectful. Why didn't he call her mother? Why did he say mm -hmm. woman? We're going to explain that in just a minute. It's an excellent question. Very good question. And he's doing something important with that. And he says to her, the first thing he says, what is it to me and to you? What is to me and to you? The ESV says, what does this, what does this problem of wine have to do with me? That misses the point. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, what does this wine situation have to do with me? This idiom is found several times in the New Testament. And the other times it's used, it's the demon-possessed man coming to Jesus saying, what do you have to do with me? What is there between us? What relationship do we have with one another? The, the idea behind this idiom is, what do these two parties have in common as far as this present situation is concerned? And so in response to Mary's request, Jesus says something like this, what do you and I have in common such that you ask me to do such a thing? What relationship do I have with you, Mary? In other words, Jesus is pushing back here on her authority to tell him to do this thing. And the natural answer to this question is, Jesus, I am your mother. <laughs> Go and fix the wine problem, right? That's not what she says. Jesus is not being rebellious here. Um, he is not dishonoring his mother. He is perfect in submission. 
to his family. He honors his mother from the cross, makes sure her needs are, are cared and provided for. But here he's teaching her and he's teaching us something very significant about his work and his mission. <laughs> and how everyone, even his mother, must relate to him. She is not the authority behind his mission. In his messiahship, even she must come in submission to him. D.A. Carson said that now that he had entered into this purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to this divine mission. And that's why he calls her woman. He's not being disrespectful here. This term woman literally means an adult female. It was a polite address you could give to another woman. But at the same time, this is not the way you normally address your mother. You don't call your mother by this title, but he does. In other words, Jesus is saying that as far as his work and mission are concerned, she must relate to him just as any other woman. She's just a woman in relation. Yeah. So would you say the equivalent in our culture would be man? Yes and no, except in our culture, man would be an acceptable way to address your mother, right? So, so, um, so non-maternal non man. Non yes, man. yes. Yeah. Yep. So it's respectful, but it certainly implies distance. <laughs> Absolutely. In other words, she must relate to him as any other woman, is Jesus' point. As he enters his public ministry, he has a new relationship with his mother. The closest of family ties mean nothing. Yeah. Question. My translation is quite a bit different. Mm -hmm. I'm using the New American Standard. Yep. In the pretext to it in chapter 2, it specifies that Jesus is there with his disciples. Mm -hmm. And instead of, in, in the red letters for a statement, it says, Woman, what does that have to do with us? Mm -hmm. My hour is not going to come. It almost makes it seem like the us is between him and his mom, but like him and his disciples, like their time yeah. to show what he's there for hasn't come yet. Yeah, so I don't know where they get the us unless there's a textual variant. The Greek is is a, a second person singular. So to make it technical, it's a, it's it's a, it's you and first person singular me. There's no, it's not a plural. So it's interesting that Nasby would, would have that, um, but it is it, it's singular there. Um, if that makes sense. So yeah, I'll have to dig around and see why Nasby did that. But I think it's it's clearly you and me. And the way this idiom is used, it's always used in that. Singular, singular. You and me. What do these two parties have, have in a relationship to each other? But it's a good question. Mike, is, this the, yes. is the woman word the same word that he uses when he's going to the cross? It is. He, addresses he always Mary. addresses his mother by his title in this gospel. It's mm -hmm. very interesting. Yeah. And I think one of the implications we can pull from this is that the closest of family ties mean nothing Insofar as his mission is concerned, she must relate to him just as any other. In other words, there's no inside track to Jesus. Even his mother must come to him in the same way, submitting to him and embracing him just as anyone else. And you know, just yeah. real quick, another thing, Mike, is the, um, uh, the Catholic version of the, Mar the Mary worship. This blows is, it out of the water. It does. Yep. And then later on in Luke, when uh, he says, Blessed is the woman who yep. nursed you, and he says, No. Yep. Blessed if you do the, the will of my Father. Yep. And uh, so 
Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the Catholics play gymnastics with this passage. They really do to, yeah. to get around this thing. Yeah. So, um, so one of the implications tells us that you don't get the benefits of Messiah any other way. Family ties mean nothing. Church attendance means nothing. Family heritage means nothing. You come to Messiah the same way. Submission and faith. And the question that still lingers, though, is why? Why this distance, Jesus? Why this new relationship? It's because everything must come in subordination to his mission because he is in perfect subordination to the mission of his Father. Look what he says. He says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus' hour is specific. It's always the hour of his glorification through crucifixion. That's what his hour is. Let me show you one instance. Look over at chapter 12. Pick up the pace here, but this is so important. Chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus' hour. What is his hour? You hear it all through the Gospel of John, and here is a climactic point. Chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. It's been prepared all the way to this point. It's come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, how would that happen? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus' hour was the time he would willingly lay down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice, an atonement for sin. He calls it an hour because it was fixed, it was determined by his Father. Jesus, from the start of his ministry, recognized that this hour was the goal. This is the goal for everything he's doing. He knows that it's coming. And he knows that everything he is doing is for the purpose of this hour. And therefore, everything must come in subordination to this hour, even the request of his mother. That's why the distance. The hour's the point. So she asks him, about this wine problem. And Jesus said, what relationship do we have with each other that you would demand this of me? I've come for an hour. It isn't here yet, but it's driving everything I'm doing, Mom. In other words, Jesus didn't come to be a winemaker. That's not the point. And he says this here so that when he does create the wine, it would be clear that the hour is the point. The wine is not the point. It's the hour. So why have I entitled this point, Christ's glory as a submissive son? Well, who is he submissive to? Not his mother here. It's because his mission is given to him by the Father. He is in perfect submission to a higher authority than his biological mother. We don't have time, but all through the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I've been sent by the Father. I've been sent by the Father. Everything I say, everything I do is in submission to my Father, the perfect son. Again, D.A. Carson said, any aspect of this ministry could never be in response to human schedules. It could only reflect the timing of the Father's will. Christ's glory consists in his absolute, perfect submission to the Father. From day one, his focus was on the cross. His focus was on the hour, and everything he did was for that. Nothing could hinder it. Nothing could lead it to him before it's time, and everything he does is to reveal it. That's why he says to his mother, my hour hasn't come. Why, why are you involving me? I, 
come to make wine, my mission is dictated on another's terms. And to this rebuke, his mother responds with faith. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She doesn't know what he means. She doesn't know what he's going to do, but she leaves the matter in his hands. We could park here and flesh out some implications for us. That's what faith looks like. Leave it in his hands. She knows he's good. She expects him to act. And she leaves him. But it leads us to the next point now. Christ's glory is the one who offers true purification. Look at verses 6 to 8. He's the submissive son, and now he's going to show something else about his glory. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Jesus has just said that his hour (laughs) hasn't yet come and that all he does is dictated by this hour. And now he goes on to say, yes, my hour hasn't come yet, but I am going to give you a sign that portrays all that will be accomplished in my hour. No, I haven't come to be a wine giver, but I will create wine to reveal my person and work. That's what's going on here. Jesus is very intentional. He mentions his hour in order to prepare us for this sign. So what's going on? Well, the first thing to notice is the presence of these water vessels for Jewish purification. It's in the near vicinity. There's six very large stone water vessels hold a ton of water, each up to 20 or 30 gallons. A total of 180 gallons of water. It's a ton of water. But what were they used for? It says they were used according to the purification of the Jews. This is not a throwaway detail. John is very intentional. Jesus is very intentional about selecting these water vessels used for purification. Ritual cleansing. There were many ritual washings that the Jews performed, both those prescribed in the Mosaic Law and those prescribed by the tradition of the elders. It was a way to obtain ceremonial purity before before God. You can read about it all over the place in the garden. These water vessels represent Jewish law and custom and ritual purification. And Jesus selects these. The next thing to notice is that he transforms this water. So the servants go, they fill them up to the brim, and he chooses this water to create the wine of. He gives them step-by-step instructions. They fill it to the brim. Look at verse 8. This is very shocking. He says to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. They had been absolutely shocked that he told them that. This water is not for drinking. This water is for bathing. He tells them, go get this water. This is bath water. Take this water to the master of the feast. (coughs) Nevertheless, the servants again obey. They take it to the master. The master of the feast is the one that was in charge of all the catering and all the food and all the events. He receives it, and by the time he receives it, it's become wine, the very best wine. So what's going on here? We get the point when we see its connection back to verse 4. My hour hasn't come. 
Jesus has already given us a clue what he's going to do here. And now he's given us an illustration. Jesus is saying that through his hour, through his exaltation, through crucifixion, he would accomplish something. All the ritual washings of the old covenant will be decisively transformed. By Christ's work in this coming hour, he will transform the entire system of Judaism into something greater and better. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 16. It told us that the grace that comes through Christ excels and replaces all the grace that was offered through the Mosaic Law. And in the same way, Jesus has come to offer a better form of purification, just as wine <coughs> is better than water. The core of Jesus' mission will consist of creating a way whereby real and lasting purification for sin is possible. It's exactly what John the Baptist proclaims. And I just baptize you with water. It does nothing to the heart. And Jesus is coming, saying, I'm ushering in a time of true cleansing for sin. Both the guilt of it and the presence of it. But you're not going to want this Messiah if you don't feel the weight and the filth and the guilt and the power of your sin. That's what he's come for. And he's going to do this by being a substitutionary sacrifice and providing the spirit for his people. That's the promise of the new covenant. You go to Ezekiel 36. We do not have time, but read about it there. And just as Jesus transforms the water of Jewish ritual into wine, so Jesus will transform the entire system of Judaism by providing cleansing from sin that ritual washings can never provide. Leon Morris said he changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ, the water of law and the wine of gospel. And it will happen through his shed blood on the cross. 1 John 1.7 says the blood of Jesus' his son does what? It cleanses us from all sins. Cleanse, you're able to be Clean. That's the best news in the world, my friends. His blood brings true and lasting cleansing, not like water. All the guilt. There's a lot of guilt here. It's clean. It's like wine that's to be drunk. Jesus said, my body, my flesh is true food, and my blood is what? It's true drink. You come to Christ not to bathe in it. You come to drink it. By faith, you embrace it. What does a thirsty man do when he sees a cup of water in front of him? He drinks. And Jesus invites us who are stained by sin. Come, drink, receive it. That's it. You see the glory of Christ now. What do you do? Receive it. Depend on it. Embrace it. Drink it like wine. That's what he tells us. He's come to offer true purification. It's amazing. Finally, look at the next point. Christ's glory is revealed as he is the bridegroom who abundantly provides for his people. He's the absolutely submissive son, perfect to the Father. He provides true and lasting purification that no ritual can ever do. And now his glory is revealed as the bridegroom. Look at verses 19. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and he did not know where it came from, 
although the servants who had drawn the water knew. Master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. Master of the feast is shocked. He goes to the bridegroom, the one who is responsible for this feast, and he asks him what is going on. And neither of them know. They don't have a clue what's happening. So the first thing you notice is the failure of the earthly bridegroom and the provision of the true bridegroom. This bridegroom failed to produce wine. He failed to provide wine. But Jesus' work here not only spares his bridegroom from great shame, he reveals that he is the true bridegroom. He is the ultimate provider for God's people. Jesus provided what this bridegroom failed to provide. You say, I don't see that, Michael. Flip over to John chapter 3, 29. The last words of John the Baptist are these. Look at chapter 3, verse 29. He said, I am not the Christ. I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Christ is the bridegroom. And as so, what does he do? He provides abundant wine. Well, what does that mean? Wine, all through the Old Testament, is a symbol of God's favor. It's a symbol of his covenant blessings on his people. The prophets look forward to a time when the Messiah would usher in a, a time of abundant wine. What does that symbolize? God's favor on his people. And that's what Jesus promises here. So do you see the progression? Because he is the obedient son, he succeeded where Israel failed. All things in you, all things in Israel only merit the curses of the covenant. But Jesus was the absolute obedient son which enabled him to do what? Make total purification for our sins, which enabled him to do what? To be that ladder that we saw in the previous verse that brings all of God's covenant blessings and God's favor to his people. You couldn't do that. Israel couldn't do that. If it's up to you, you get curses. Your best works merit the curses of God. But Jesus provides abundantly God's favor for his people because of all that he's done. He is the true bridegroom. He abundantly provides wine for his people. The second thing to notice is the custom of man in contrast to the wisdom of God. The master of this feast questions the bridegroom, what has happened? Look at verse 10. He said to him, everybody, literally every man, this is a universal practice, serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. <coughs> the thing is that once inebriation sets in, the people are a little buzzed by the, the wine. They don't care about the quality of the, the wine that comes later. The inferior comes last. But Jesus' sign shows us something about the contrast of the wisdom of God to man's thinking. In God's plan, the best comes last. That's the glory of the old covenant is outshined by the glory of Christ. 
The purification of the Old Covenant is outshined by the purification that Christ brings. The blessings of the Old Covenant are outshined by the blessings that Christ brings. The best becomes, the, the, the last is the best, the last of all is, is Christ. He would provide a better purification. He would provide an abundant messianic banquet. And it culminates in verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says this, the first of his signs, revelations of his glory, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus puts his glory on display. Clearly this shows he's God. He wouldn't be able to do any of these things if he wasn't God. But the point is much more. He is the obedient son, always after the cross. He offers perfect purification for every sin and freedom from the power of sin. And he is the bridegroom that ushers in all of God's blessings and favor. You couldn't do that on your own. You have to have him. That's his glory. The question is, what's the application? Look at verse 11. His disciples believed in him. Sight of glory leads to faith for everyone who's been born again. Initial faith, if you've never been born again, and maturing faith. That's what's going on here with the disciples. They're already believers, and now they're said to believe again. The more of his glory they behold, the deeper and truer their faith is. And the cycle in John is that the more their faith grows, what are they going to be able to do? They're going to see what? More of his glory. And the more of his glory they see, what's going to happen? The more of their faith will grow. And it's a cycle that continues for eternity. That's what's going on here. And that's what we need. We need to see the glory of Christ. Why? So that our faith can grow. Why? So that we can see the glory of Christ. We said at the beginning that the glory of Christ is not a means to an end. It's the end. This is eternal life. Why? So that they may know you, the everlasting God in Jesus whom you sent. He's not a means to the end. He is the end. That's what heaven is, is beholding the glory of Christ. And we begin now. By the aid of the Spirit, we can say we've seen his glory. What is his glory? It's these things here. What do you do? Embrace him. Receive him. Depend on him afresh for all of these things. He's wonderful. He's amazing. He's our only hope. What the fuck? It's a glorious passage. It's, uh, it's good. Any, any thoughts, questions, comments? 1015. I just thought it was interesting that the Bible opens with the way, and he closes with the way, and he just repeated with that way. Beautiful. Yep. It is the, uh, the symbol of symbols. It is. And uh, in that wedding we read about in Revelation, that's what Jesus is promising here. I'm going to give you that messianic banquet, but the only way, you got to embrace them. It's free. <laughs> Receive them. That's all you got to do. But it will require your life as we already saw in the previous chapter. There's a hymn by a man named Samuel Rutherford. He was a Puritan. Back in the 1600s. I'm just going to read a couple verses in closing. It's called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. I don't know if you've heard it. Wonderful hymn. Let me just read the last two verses and we'll be done. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. 
I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. That's it. It's Christ. It's his glory. We pray. Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for your spirit. The only way we see this, the only reason we see this is you've caused us to be born again. And we ask, Lord, that as we behold you, we would love him more. Oh, God, we don't love him like we should. We don't trust him like we should. Help us, we pray. Thank you for his glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and being so set on the Father's will, dying, making perfect purification. That's ours by faith alone. We receive it and depend on it. Help us, Lord, I pray. Strengthen us. This is the remedy for sin. It's the remedy for sorrow and pain and suffering. It's Christ. He makes sense of of it all. Bless us, Lord. Prepare us for the service to come, I pray. We love you. In Jesus' name. You are dismissed.